Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Ephesians 4, 12 through 22. And the last time we covered, well, I named the sermon from talking to walking in unity. And you can kind of see a really neat pattern in the Apostle Paul's letter where he, the first few chapters, he builds us up. We can get encouraged. You know, we, we are blessed with what the Lord has done, his love, his plan of salvation. And then right towards the middle of the letter, he expects us to do something with it. Actually, God's word expects us to do something with it. So we go from talking getting the basis, the foundation done to actually walking. What does God want? He wants unity. He wants unity in the church. Today the message is unification for preparation. Right? We're to be, we see the relationship among the spiritual gifts, unity, and maturity and completeness. So to, to kind of wrap it all together, to bring it all together, we don't really go to church. That's such a misnomer in American culture. If you read the book of Acts and you look at the early church, everybody was involved. We don't go to church. We are the church, right? Uh, James 1 tells us that we go from being not only hearers only, but also to doers. So we're going to talk about this relationship, how you can be a part of being the church and, and doing your part. The Apostle Paul likens it to a physical body. If a body part is missing here and there, the body doesn't function properly. So we're going to kind of acquiesce into, and let's see, the next Sunday I'm going to finish it up, uh, the old life of the flesh versus the new life of the spirit. And we'll see how it all comes together. If you don't make every Sunday, you can get it free on the website. I really encourage you to do that. Because as we go through a letter, remember the Apostle Paul wrote this to churches, and they were supposed to read it to the body in one continuous thought from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 6. So if we, as a church body today in 2015, miss a piece here and there, it is actually going to cause confusion. We're going to be confused. Uh, so, you know, this is, and, and then we, make, we make, make wrong assumptions about the Word of God. We may make wrong assumptions about the preaching that we hear. So it really has to be contiguous. It has to be consistent as we go through these letters. So without further ado, we'll jump in and just want to give you a quick recap because where we left off was Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul telling us that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth, and then he ascended, right, to, be, um, to come out and to be resurrected. But when he descended, he freed people that were part of this. And what I'm going to do is uh, go to the first slide. <clears throat> this is an artist's rendition of what, oh, the, the other one. <laughs> We covered this a few Sundays ago. We talked about the Earth's core. We talked about the heat. We talked about uniform pressure if you were at the center of the Earth. Then we talked about what the Bible says about different compartments in the Earth. Remember, I have a science teacher in the body who talks to me about string theory and other theories about how even like dimensions can be so close to us, like right in front of us, but we don't see it because we're in a different direction, but it's so close. Like people ask the question, where is heaven? Is it at the end of the universe? It's God's dwelling place, and God is also omnipresent. So when you, talk about, when you actually start to look at science, 
and look at some of the theories that man is trying to catch up with things that the Bible has already said. It actually is pretty, pretty mind-blowing. So based on this, this uh, diagram, where do people go when they pass away? Well, let's look at pre-cross, right, before the cross. There was two compartments of Hades, the good compartment and the not-so-good compartment. And basically what happens is when a person passes, Jesus died for the sins of the past, present, and the future. So before the cross, before Jesus died for Abraham and Moses and them, they went somewhere. They went to a very actual comfortable place uh, on this right side of Hades, or Abraham's bosom as it's been called. So the righteous dead go there. It's a good place. It's a waiting place, right, until Jesus died for their sins. The ones who died in rebellion or not in faith end up over here, which is not a good place. Luke 16, I covered that. Okay, um, so that's the first thing. When it talks about the, the demons, what about the demons? Well, here's the white, the bottomless pit on the center. Uh, the Bible in Revelation talks about pretty much the earth opening it up at some point in the time of Revelation, and it, it pretty much a shaft for them to come out and cause havoc on the earth. It's one of the judgments in the book of Revelation. But if you're a believer, you're not going to be here to see that. I hope that this isn't necessarily frightening, but it really gives us an urgency to preach to the people that we know, the, the people that we love, the truth. So some demons are apparently on the earth. Jesus dealt with them in his time. Some are, I, for lack of a better word, incarcerated, maybe because they don't play by the rules, but they are going to be released at the time of Revelation. Let's look at after the cross. Jesus died for our sins. The Apostle Paul tells us, and I used a lot of scripture the last time. If you're confused, just go back to that section. He says, before the Lord ascended, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And what did he do? The people who were in this good place, once he died for their sins, he was able to release them and they can be in God's presence. Hebrews 11:13, it says that many of the saints died in faith, not receiving the promises, but seeing it afar off. So in other words, Abraham dies, Moses dies, they die in faith. There's a promises in the distant, but they don't realize it actually until Jesus ends up dying for their sins. Matthew 27, the saints around this time were resurrected and appeared to many in the holy city. So there was this, you know, Jesus goes, he dies on the cross, he descends, he ascends, and saints end up coming out of the graves, and people are seeing this. I mean, some stuff in the Bible is really kind of gives you chills. So you put all this stuff together, and you can see something happened in that time period when Jesus died on the cross and he rose again. Um, unfortunately, today, at this point in time, this is empty, but for these people, they're still there. who have rejected God's plan of salvation, died in rebellion. The third part is the times of revelation in our future. Okay, the demonic beings will be released. We talked about that. And then at some point in time, before the millennium, especially Satan will be thrown back into the abyss. It'll be shut down, and he'll stay there until the end and the judgment, and then Satan will be released and sent into the lake of fire to be burned for all eternity. Matthew 25, uh, Jesus says to the, to the accursed to go to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hades, in the book of Revelation, gets thrown into the lake of fire. Um, those who have rejected God and die in rebellion will be judged at the great white throne judgment, and unfortunately they'll spend eternity at the, in the lake of fire. Uh, those that die in faith spend eternity with God. Again, listen, this isn't popular to preach, but if you read the whole Bible several times, you come to this conclusion. 
Um, and again, it should give us an urgency. Listen, I know it's the summer and the weather's beautiful and spring was cold and, and you know, we really missed out on a lot of things and now's the time to really go out and have fun. But you know what? People are dying. Every day they're dying. I have an urgency, honestly, probably because 23 years as a road cop, I've seen a lot of people die and it's not pleasant. Friends, I've buried friends, it's not pleasant. Um, I know people that are struggling because it, death is all around us. We have a high um, uh, overdose and suicide rate. It, it's, it's bad. We need to show people the love of God before they leave this earth. I personally believe, take it with, with a grain of salt, I believe that based on everything I read in Scripture that God gives people an opportunity before they die to receive him. I had a neighbor that I witnessed to for over 10 years, and a very kind, giving man was very sweet, but he always would resist me. He's like a dad to me. And eventually when he died, I did his, his uh, funeral, part of it anyway, and uh, I was so blessed to know that the hospital staff advised me that his last day, he said, I want to be left alone, and they could see him laying in his bed and talking. And I believe that everything I said to him for those 11 years brought him into the kingdom. So, but that doesn't excuse us from not trying. If we really love people, we've got to tell them the truth. This is not it. If we think this is it, we're being fooled. We're being lied to. So love has to trump our, our, we have to sacrifice a little bit as American Christians. I know it's hard, but we have to because it's an epidemic all around us. And you know what? For those of you that are part of the regular body, let people know that they can come here. I don't care what sin they're involved in. I don't care what their issue is. This is a place that they can run to, and people have, and people come and go from here that are into some things that are very self-destructive, but they know that this is a place for them. I'll leave you with one more quick story, and then I'll move on to the message, is that we had a, a young lady who, who was involved in addictions, and she was in her 20s, and she would come, and I know she was hearing the word, and I know that she came at times under the influence. And I know one particular time she went outside and vomited because when she came in, I could smell it on her breath. But you know what? The girl was always welcome here, and she heard enough of the word that she got out of it, and she's actually living a successful life today. And uh, to me, hey, we were a little part of her life, and I would like to believe that we helped in that process in helping her to get well, but we lose some. It, it's up to God, but we do have to really go out there and really love people enough to share the truth of everlasting life with them. Amen? Amen? Okay, verse 12. So the Apostle Paul speaks about how Jesus gave gifts. There was some, he made pastors, teachers, evangelists. He goes on in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, or serving, or being a servant, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the purpose of the spiritual gifts, let me just use, and I like to use vernacular 2,000 years later today, phrases and stuff that we understand. You know, you go to something you really like, a career, and you get a benefits package. Well, let me tell you the eternal benefits package of a believer, and I'll just, I'll just give some of these to you. Number one is to have a relationship with our Creator. Number two is that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Three, we get to go to heaven, many others. But five, I want to focus on is these spiritual gifts. Again, we, we're all born with some type of natural ability. When we're born again of the Spirit, when we trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, I don't know if it's dormant. 
I don't know if he just gives, it, gives them to us at the time, but when our spirit is regenerated, we get these awesome gifts that we can normally not do by our own ability. So these are called spiritual gifts. They're literally um, supernatural abilities. In a sense, we're kind of like superheroes because, <laughs> you know, God is indwelling us and he, get, he helps us to do things we could normally never do. So I like to think of that as these supernatural abilities. Okay? Unfortunately today, and there's a lot of preaching, and I caution you, if you, listen, you, there's a lot of great teachers out there. If you hear a preacher who tells you to focus on all the things you could get from God and not about loving God, turn the channel, turn the station, you know, delete it, right? It's a relationship with us and God. So the purpose of the spiritual gifts, number one, and we should always be doing this, is glorifying God. Number two, unifying the church. And number three, maturing the individual in the process of serving, yes, serving. And we have people that serve outside of these walls, serve in the community, but they're doing something. And that's, that's part of the maturing process, is this serving, donating our time, sacrificing other things so that we can win others to Christ and, first of all, that we can help to unify the church. So verse 12, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Have we been Christians for a while and let things get in the way? Have we become distracted? Has advancement and money and leisure? Some people worship leisure. Is that a distraction? I don't get how somebody can be a Christian for 10, 20, 30 years and live completely for themselves. Well, my spouse does something, or my kids do something, or my parents. Well, what about you? When we go to heaven, we stand before God, you know, individually, not with an attorney, not with a PR person, right? Not with a Facebook following, but person to person. Amen? And let me, listen, this is a weird message because it's going to be a little bit of, it's going to be a pinch of encouragement with a pinch of conviction. And I'm going to mix it all together. But that's a good thing. That's what we need. We need both. We all, we all have a purpose in God's economy. And once we operate in it, we understand, we are mature, we are full, we are complete. You know, so many in this world, even Christians, are looking for fulfillment. And they're looking for a sense of purpose. But it's right here. If we would just open the Bible and understand that God's giving us our sense of purpose. You get supernatural superhero powers to do amazing things that you could not have done on your own or in your own strength. A lot of people are looking for purpose, but they're looking in the wrong places. This has the answer. I challenge anybody to come to me and say, okay, stand by your words, pastor. I want to know how I can turn my life around. Okay, we'll discuss it scripturally. And I challenge you to see if it doesn't, if you're listening to what I'm telling you based on what the scripture says. Purpose, completement, fulfillment, it's right in here. It's right in here. The problem, though, that is in 2015... The church is very, it's very transient. It's very fluid, especially in this area. And I have to tell you that if persecution comes, by the way, persecution to Christians has come in the United States, and it's come through the courts. And Department of Homeland Security, FBI, are already telling us to make us feel real comfortable that ISIS is probably in every state, the 50 states. So if you don't think that persecution is coming, you're fooling yourself. If we continue to live a self-directed life, when persecution does come, people are going to be completely unprepared. They're going to be panicking, and they're going to look no different than the world looks because they're not spiritually trained and prepared. 
And then what happens, again, is if we're, not, if we're just doing the Sunday Christian thing or barely Sunday Christian thing, we start to make wrong assumptions about God, about us, about our church leaders, about the people that we watch on TV, and we start to get confused of all the stuff that we're taking in. The Bible tells us that we can be trained, we can be mature, we can be unified. These things can happen. Spiritual boot camp, so to speak, to prepare us for those spiritual battles. Want to be bigger than some, you want to be bigger than, than yourself? Something bigger than yourself? The answers are right here. Verse 14. He continues that we should no longer, Christians, we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. A lot of false teachers out there saying things that sound good to the soul but not the spirit. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So what does the lack of maturity, the lack of spiritual unity, the lack of sacrifice so that we can work in God's field, what does that do? Well, it can cause us, number one, to be self-deceived, and number two, to, to possess an eclectic or hodgepodge of beliefs. Right? Because, you know, what are we, what are we doing here? We're not... We're not paying attention. We're not applying ourselves. What the Apostle Paul is saying that, you know, little kids, and he, he always, Jesus, they, you know, Peter, Paul, they always put these parables, something you see on the earth that you can apply spiritually. When you deal with a five-year-old, they can go to one person and they can teach them something and they believe it because they're so trusting. Then they go to somewhere else and they can teach them the opposite thing and they believe it. And before you know it, the kid's confused. He's tossed to and fro. That's why it's so important to pour into our children. But the Apostle Paul is saying that we shouldn't be like spiritual children that never come out of the infancy, the immaturity stage. And everything that we hear, we hear. And believe me, I meet Christians in Calvary chapels that have all these weird beliefs and they're inconsistent with each other. They don't line up because they don't know their Bibles. i tell you something. <clears throat> You know, I've done a lot of study. I've got the articles in my office. I'll make all 15, 20 copies for you. I've listened to the guy. I've watched the guy. Joel Osteen. If you're listening to him, it's because you like what he's saying. You know that it can't, all the stuff that he says can't be true. You know that life isn't like that because you're a normal person. You don't live in the gated community he lives in. He probably doesn't have some of the trials that you do. But he puts on that big smile, that big smile, and he tells you how much God loves you, everything's going to be great, and it's garbage. And if you're listening to it, it's because you want it to be true. But let me tell you something, that's a slap in the face to our brothers and sisters who we're going to spend eternity with who are dying at the hands of ISIS, who are getting their heads cut off. You think what he says is going to make any difference over there? There's no way that kind of teaching can stand. Right? Serious business. Many are still stuck in worldly philosophies, and worldly philosophies that are in church doctrinal teachings that are false. They're dangerous. They're ephemeral. They're, they're short-lived. 1 Peter 1, 24-25, he also takes this from the, the Old Testament. 
He says, all flesh is as grass. When we die, the elements in our body break down and go into the ground. And the glory of man as the flower of the grass, the grass withers and its flowers falls away. Any glory that we might possess in our short lives on this earth is so short-lived. Maybe one day they'll name a street after us or a wing in a college and a hundred years later people say, who is that person? It's short-lived. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Forever. Verse 15, he talks about speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. It's not an easy thing. It's a very hard, tight walk to, to, to walk. Truth without love is harsh. We can give the truth in a real mean, nasty, cold, heartless way. You know, I, I do like some street preaching and some I don't like. Where's the love of God? A lot of the things that they say are true, but there's no love. I can't preach like that. However, love without truth is an oxymoron. There can't be love if there's no truth in what we're saying. That's not love. And it's exceptionally cruel when it comes to eternal things because it leaves the hearer damned for all eternity without their sins dealt with. How do we get to this point in Christianity where we give the truth without love or we love emotionally but we don't give the truth? They're both wrong. Now, I admit, we had some interesting discussion at the men's group. Um, some Christians don't do a great job of giving the truth in love. And they probably should be quiet and not say anything. I want to read to you 2 Peter 1 through 3. 2 Peter. Second Peter. One. And th- uh, verse 3. It says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, we have the ability. The biggest lie perpetrated on the church are all the things that God has given us, but we're being deceived and thinking that we don't have. If the Bible tells us to do something, God is not a cruel and unfair God. Don't do this. Well, we have the ability not to do this. Do this. We have the ability to do it because he's given us that ability. And he says he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. He didn't leave anything out for what we need. You know, I, um, <laughs> sometimes I look in, I, don't, I just kept them from college and we're talking well over 20 years ago. I, the biological, the physical sciences, the biology and stuff, they would never use the books that I got from Rutgers over 20 years ago today. Because science is always changing. Because we're always learning new things about the human body, about the, the cosmos, all these types of things. So we would never use those books. But the Word of God stands forever. We actually had a really great discussion too about um, the mental health community. There's the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And I actually printed out a whole bunch of articles and it's very interesting. In the National Health Services article, it says, because there's a lot of controversy, the mental health profession is, they're butting their heads about the whole DSM-5, who, what was taken out, what shouldn't have been left in. But, but this is the conclusion. I thought it was very well written. It says, our knowledge about the human mind is dwarfed 
by our understanding of the rest of the body. We have tools that can confirm a diagnosis of a sprained ankle or a damaged lung with pinpoint accuracy. No such tools currently exist to accurately diagnose a damaged mind. It could be that our current models of human psychology could be as flawed as the four humors model of the medi medieval medicine. Rather than seeing the DSM-5 as the psychiatric bible, it may be better to think of it as a rudimentary travel guide to a land where we have barely begun to explore. But the word of God stands forever. What does speaking the truth in love look like? This is what it looks like. When somebody comes into the church who's a sinner, by the way, you have a sinner behind your pulpit. Just, I don't want to shock you. There's a sinner behind your pulpit. And when the worship team comes up, there's more sinners up here on the stage. So just want to make sure before full disclosure that you understand that going into this. When somebody comes into the church, we welcome them and we make them feel loved. We don't beat them up, even if they blurted out what sin they're involved in. We give them time, we introduce them to the word, we pray for them, and we let God do the work. You know what I found? God does a much better job convicting people of sin than I do. That's the beauty. And I remember my wife and I talk about the days of going into a church where some people shunned us because of what we, what, the way we were and coming into the church, and some people were very welcoming, and because of the welcoming, we stayed, and we heard the word of God, and it changed us. And sometimes Christians can be a little sanctimonious after so many years in the Lord. Then we have this us versus them and look down our nose at other people and we shouldn't. Let God do the work. He does a much better job than we do and he's a lot more gentle. Now if we're asked the question, we give the truth in a loving way. You know? So again, truth without love, love without truth, they don't work. And, and love is not just a warm emotion where we skirt the truth. Remember, Penn Jillette, again, I think he's still an atheist, but all the years that he's been alive, he, he talked about one Christian businessman who told him about heaven and hell and about Christianity and witnessed to him. And you can see his video on YouTube. He says, he goes, if you're a Christian and believe this, how much do you have to hate me to not share this with me? Why is it at this point in my life I finally heard it? Another brother said to me who came out of gangs and, and rough neighborhood, he says, nobody could see past my anger and love me enough to tell me about God. Why? Why didn't they? You know, it's amazing. You become a Christian. You wonder why somebody didn't tell you this sooner. Love is telling the truth, but in a loving way. And here's the other thing. Love, love without the truth is, without God's word, is heartless and keeps the hearers in a cycle of dysfunction while they're on this, this earth to be torturously played out to the rest of their lives. Proverbs 27 5 through 6, it says, Open rebuke is better than love concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy or the flattery of an enemy or the telling the things that they think you want to hear is deceitful. I love this. The Apostle Paul likens the body of believers to a human body working at its optimum. One of my favorite classes in, in college was anatomy and physiology. I still... I just, I still, you know, if I go to a doctor's office, I look at the charts and I'm like, I try to guess the nerves and, you know, from all my recollection, the bones in the foot and all that kind of stuff, it's pretty fascinating. But the human body works, it's, it's got thousands of systems on the micro level and a macro level. 
And when you know that when your body is optimum, you can do amazing things. However, if one hormone or one brain chemical is off, it can cause major dysfunction in that human body. And the Apostle Paul is likening that to a church, aggregately and also a local church. A few people, that are, their hearts are not right, can throw the church into crisis mode, can make the church look like 1 Corinthians, which was not a church that certainly we want. You know, it's an attitude of selfishness. And today in the entitlement generation, sometimes that bleeds into the church. Let me come in here and I want to know what you people can do for me. No, you're part of the church. What can you do to be a part of the body functioning at its optimum? Challenge me again. I love to throw these challenges out. Rarely does anybody take me up on it. Tell me how much of a worthless loser that somebody told you you are that you can't do anything. And I'm going to tell you how God can use you. Go ahead, sit down with me and convince me that you're worthless. Because I'm going to tell you a different story, and I'm going to tell you what God can do for you. And I'm going to tell you how he can use you to do amazing things. Second challenge of, of the sermon. So I'm going to be out there in the lobby waiting for some people to throw the challenges at me. We'll, we'll talk. It's okay. We see all these words connected. Truth, love, maturity, growth, service, etc. Last few verses. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles. Now that word Gentiles would be translated today, would be the heathen, the ungodly, people that don't know God. Because I know I was once a, a heathen, <laughs> 24 years old, 25, I, I came to Christ. So before that, I lived a very heathen lifestyle. Makes sense. When I become a believer, things start to change for the better. God works in me. So he says, no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles or the heathen in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardening of, of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to licentiousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. Indeed, you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning your former conduct or behavior. The old man, another uh, sort of parable, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. It seems like now he's changing the subject. Now, you know, walking in, in your old ways and, you know, what are you talking about? Well, listen, we have to, the unifying comes from us all reading and following the same playbook. You guys, a lot of you watch sports, baseball, football, especially football. Here's the play. Now go out onto the field. If two players are, are bumping into the rest of them and they, they're not, they don't remember the play, there's a problem. They're not going to be victorious. Well, this is even more important. It's even more important. We have to be matured and grow by the same playbook, God's Word, which changes us, not for us to change it. And we, we do that a lot. We want to change what God's word says. We want to make it upbeat with the, listen, in the 1980s, there was, the culture was a certain way. Well, what if we change God's word to fit that? Well, now in 2015, the culture's different. Well, are we going to keep changing God's word? We can't. It has to change us. I named my only child, my son, Josiah, from King Josiah from the Old Testament. Here was a guy who... He says, boy, God, you know, these people, everybody's like, they're so heathen. They're not worshiping God. The temple's in disrepair. He goes a project to, to fix the temple. They find God's word. They bring it back to the king, and he's, he's repentant. He's reading the word, and he's cut to the heart. He didn't say, hey, everybody, this is funny. I found God's word. Look what it says. We're so different. I should just burn this. He didn't do that. 
King Josiah didn't try to change God's word. He let the word change him. You see what I'm saying? It was a, a, a revival, a fast, a mourning. That's what the Bible is supposed to do. He didn't say this is outdated. So we see this bifurcation or splitting personal maturity. We've talked about that. And then also church or unity, which can be restated as church body maturity. And our lives should be different than the rest of the world. Or what's the attraction? If we're living just like our heathen neighbor, why would they listen to us? There should be a difference. We should reflect Jesus Christ so that they can be attracted to that. Because that's what people are attracted to, Jesus Christ. It isn't us. It isn't my preaching. I'm giving you the word. You're attracted to God's word if you're attracted at all. So basically the Apostle Paul says, walk. And then he says, don't walk. Kind of reminds me of one of them electronic signs at an intersection. Walk. Don't walk. Cars are coming. Well, if you don't listen to that sign, you can get run over. However, if you don't listen to the signs here, it can be a lot worse. This is not a suggestion. This isn't for Christians to say, well, that's only some Christians. Well, that's good for the pastors. That's good for people on staff, but not for me. This is for all of us. That our identity, our cues are not taken from from Hollywood or even religious people that talk a lot and don't do. Our identity is to be taken from God's word. That new person, that new person of, of the spirit. A new you, right? You see all these weight loss. A new you, you know, a makeover. A new you will give you new clothes and cut your hair. And Okay, great, a new you. But how long is that going to be fun for? Until your hair grows out and you need more makeup and you have to change your clothes because they got ripped up. This is a new you that God wants to give us. And I think for me it's funny because when I came to Christ, it wasn't because I, was, I hit rock bottom. I actually was doing well. But... You know, I, I just, there was some things that needed to be, to be changed, and God's word helped me to see the need for those changes. So that's, that's what we're looking at. I mean, gee, when you look at real revivals in the past, bars were shut down, houses of prostitution were shut down. Listen, it wasn't like you see today. The Christians didn't go out and they picketed. That's not the way we do it. What happened was it was individual evangelization, individual discipleship, and you know what? People didn't desire to get drunk anymore. They wanted to actually be home with their families. Men didn't want to cheat on their wives anymore. They wanted to do the right thing and, and live according to God's ways. So what happens? It's like, a, it's like economic supply and demand. The demand went down, so the supply had to go down. My, my pastor always said, and we even talked about with abortion cl- clinics, he goes, it would be a lot better instead of holding up grotesque pictures to actually go to these people and and build a bridge, talk to them. Somebody going in, they look scared, they're alone, going in to consider an abortion. Hey, listen, if you change your mind, I'm I'm praying for you. This is my phone number. You know, make personal contacts with people. That's what discipleship is all about. And you know what? Some of us, believe it or not, when I was a kid and, and a teenager, up until my early 20s, I was extremely shy. I know that's hard to believe. When I became a Christian, I wanted people to know the, the awesome, the joy that I had. And I, I started to change. Even some of my idiosyncrasies changed. Like I said, you're still a sinner behind the pulpit. I still have things that God needs to work on me with. And ask my wife about that. But with, these, with these, these revivals, you know, Christians today, a lot of times they look and they look for the culture to set the tempo of their lives. 
But the word says that we're supposed to be, through the word of God, setting the temple for the communities. And there's people who should be drawn to that. They're looking for authenticity, not necessarily churchy people, but authentic people. The Apostle Paul makes a comparison to the, to the heathen compared to the believer. And again, don't walk. Number one, they walk in the futility of their mind, or their minds are transient, they're, they're depraved. Um, the Greek word for mind means it, it permeates their intellect. Uh, even their intellect is, is permeated by some of this worldliness. Number two, that their understanding is darkened, their deep thought, their imaginations. I'm going to use a lot of synonyms here. I'm going to look at the, the different words, and I looked at the different words in the Greek, and I was playing with the words, so I could give you a real good plethora of synonyms so that you could grasp the, the meaning of what they're saying here. I mean, how does a person, how does a person kill? Multiple times. How does a person rape? How does a person... You see these videos now of gangs of, of people beating up one person or a homeless man to within an inch of his life. How do you do that? People say they're animals. You take the spirit of, a, of God out of a man and you turn him into an animal. Because all he thinks about is his lower forms of, of survival and entertainment. You take the spirit of God out of me and I revert to an animal. Right? You know, and it bothers us. You know, child predators, this, their understanding is darkened. It means they're obsessed, that it's constantly on their minds and imaginations. How many times you read an article where a child predator says, don't let me out into the community, I'll do it again. Because they're obsessed with these thoughts. Three, they're alienated from the life of God. Alienated, estranged from God's economy and God's relationship with them. You know, it's, even in, into, it gets into science. We'd rather believe in millions of accidents or errors in the genetic code that produces something so perfect. And it just keeps getting better with all the, the, the negativity and the errors and the mutations. More mutations bring it on. Mutations bring on perfection. Where does that work in the observable world? In a scientific method, to observe it in a laboratory. It doesn't work. It's never worked. But you throw enough zeros at the end of the years and we start to believe it. I've got to tell you something on a, on a positive note. I have my beehives, and, <laughs> and in two of the hives, I, put, I cut a hole. My poor bees, they're like, we don't have any privacy. I cut holes, rectangular holes, and I put clear plexiglass so I could see what they're doing inside of the beehive. Yeah, no privacy for my bees. But basically, um, they're making, because they're queenless, they're making a new queen. They're taking one of the cells, and they're elongating it, and one of the eggs, they're going to put royal jelly in there and fill it up. And a, a normal female worker is going to come out a huge, beautiful queen. And my wife's like, they're, I think they're beautiful. I mean, there's only one queen in the hive. She's just beautiful, you know? <laughs> when I can open up the hive, I go, oh, it's the queen. My wife's in the kitchen going, you know. <laughs> Let's bring this to reality. They're bugs, for heaven's sake. If you looked at a, a bee brain, you would need a glasses or uh, some type of microscope to see their brain but they're bugs but they do sometimes they're smarter than people that didn't just come out of my mouth you see what I'm saying I mean this is how are you gonna tell me that they're it, millions of years of accidents they know how to do so much stuff I could talk all day about my bees but I won't the fourth thing it says these things happen because of ignorance hardened heart synonyms Callousness, blindness. I love looking at the official Greek lexicon. Another word is stupidity. I'm like, wow, that's in there. <laughs> I 
Don't confuse me with the facts. I want to believe what I want to believe. So now they have, now they have atheist churches I read. Yes, a building and pews and, and the, greeters, the greeters are there. What do they say? Welcome, your, wife ha- your life has no purpose. What do they say to these people? You better go out and have fun today because you get hit by a bus and then there's nothing after that. What's the draw to an atheist church? If God doesn't exist, why are you trying so hard to fight against him? It's because really internally, innately, they know there's a God. They know there's a creator. Five, it says, who being past feeling has been given over to licentiousness, wantonness, filthiness, vice, and uncleanness or impurity. And these are just general terms, and I believe they're general for a reason. Now, let's not make the mistake, because before I was a Christian, I didn't kill anybody. I didn't assault. I didn't do any of the things that I just said. I mean, I, I didn't aggravate or assault anybody or whatever. Sometimes it was mutual but we'll just leave it at that. Anyway, but I was, I was, my sins had to be dealt with, whatever sins I had. And, you know, I don't, you don't have to be a murderer. We, we start to look at other people and say, well, I'm better than them. Well, I didn't. well, where is the line drawn? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible says. The soul that sins will die. This is the truth. This is the truth. There's a few other things he talks about. Greediness, covetousness, fraudulence, or avarice. You ever get those phone calls? <laughs> well, you get your number. It's like you get pick up the phone. It's my home phone. Somebody with a very heavy accent, and they're going to tell me that I need to go onto the computer and do all this stuff because somebody hacked my computer. Click. It's like, go out and work for a living. You know, well, come on. And you can hear all the people in the background. It's, it's, they're fraud centers. You can hear, they're all, they're all doing the same thing, trying to put your, get you to put your credit card number. It's another per, uh, public service announcement. Just hang up or, or call Verizon or call uh, Microsoft and make sure that it's not really real. And if it, just hang up on them. Okay, that's, that's enough. But here's the sad thing. Some of this greediness is in certain denominations in the church. And a lot of people are turned off because of that. Greediness, avarice. The preaching of, you know, just to be wealthy. And usually the most wealthy person is the senior pastor in that church. And everybody else is giving them all their money. So greediness, unfortunately, is in not the real church, but in some churches as far as buildings go. I want to leave you with this. This, and this is where we're going to end for this morning. And I really want to encourage you, next Sunday, I'm going to talk about the new you. Maybe that'll be my title. So I really want you to get next Sunday's message because it's going to be really encouraging. Where I want to leave this is that he speaks about being past feeling. Now, that can also be translated apathetic or past the grieving stage. Or really, think about this, a clinical term, desensitization. Some people are past feeling for their own well-being. And again, I don't like to talk about this from the pulpit. I don't, I'm not a, a shock jock. But we, we have to open our eyes. People are dying every day. And you know what's alarming is the teen suicide rate. I'm hearing about it on a weekly basis, and it grieves my heart. Let me just say this. If you know somebody who's struggling, let them know they can come here. Even if it's after hours, they can call. Even if it's after hours. That's what, you know, why do we, why do we, why should we be unified? So number one, what does God want? He wants his church to be strengthened and matured. And if we are strengthened and matured, then we can make a difference in the rest of the world. Listen, the pastors here, we're so thankful. You know, you, 
You say, hey, I want you to talk to my, my spouse or my parents or my kid or my neighbor about Jesus, and that's great. But we also want to train you to be able to do the same thing. There's only so many of us. And you know what? If the, if the load is heavy, um, sometimes we don't get to people in time. We don't, listen, I'm not here up here being pedantic, and neither was the, the Apostle Paul. Nobody's here trying to tell you what to do. You could take the message or leave it. You can go outside, do whatever you want for the rest of the week. But the reason it's in here is so that we can realize our sense of purpose. To grow and strengthen the church, to, to strengthen each other. There's a lot of broken people out there, and God wants to fix them. And for some reason, a lot of times he uses us. Listen, some people call me intense, and I'll, I'll own that. But over 20 years of seeing people die and destroy their lives, I am intense. I'll do whatever I have to do to bring somebody to Christ within ethical and biblical guidelines. So you don't have to ask me the question, Pastor Joe, would this type of person be allowed in our church? You don't have to ask me. The answer is yes. And everybody else will come around them and will welcome them with open arms. So, pragmatic lesson. God wants his church strengthened. He wants it unified. He also wants the broken to be healed with the love of Christ. He wants them to be healed with the healing truth. We have to mature. We have to grow. We have to put away childish things so that we can be unified and that we can be prepared for the broken that comes into this church. Unification for preparation. Preparation to do these things. So I just would leave you this question. Where do you fit in? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.